Father, thank you for the worship today. We have been taken into the very throne room of God, into your presence. And Lord, our hearts rejoice. I pray, Father, that we would at this moment be able to see you high and lifted up. That we might understand we're coming into your presence and in a sense we must keep silence before you. We quiet our souls to be still and know that you are God. Open your word today. Take it home to our hearts by your spirit. Give us understanding that we don't possess in and of ourselves and cause us to see Christ in all his beauty and his glory on the pages of scripture. We ask in your holy name. Amen. 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 Guest speaker was being introduced at a banquet, and the host said, Our speaker tonight has made $100,000 in the oil business. <laughs> we should listen to him. The speaker stood up and addressed his audience and said, I must make a few corrections to my introduction. He said, first of all, it was not me, it was my brother. And it wasn't the oil business, it was real estate. It wasn't $100,000, it was a million dollars. And he didn't make it, he lost it. <laughs> Other than that, the rest of the story was pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how often we get the facts of a story so wrong. And that's what Paul is explaining here in the book of Romans regarding the Jew and their understanding of their relationship with God. I suppose it could be expressed in a, a simple syllogism where God has given to Abraham and his seed the right to inherit everything, the world. And a person could simply say, I am a child of Abraham. And thirdly, God always keeps his promise. Sounds rather simple. It's a, a clear, logical case. And therefore, it doesn't really make any difference what I do. I'm a child of Abraham, and therefore, I stand to inherit everything, and God never revokes a promise. And Paul comes along, and he says, you know, there really is no fundamental difference between you and the Gentile. All have sinned. And he goes on to say that the law and circumcision do not guarantee you impunity from God's justice. And you can imagine, can't you, the, the chaos, the, the, the conflict that was in the minds of the people who heard and how they responded with, with outrage while you are undermining the very fundamental foundation of the covenant and God's promise. And the clash must have been great. So, the Apostle Paul, when we come to Romans chapter 3, begins to argue with an imaginary Jew. Now, actually, he did this in chapter 2 as well. It's 
a literary technique or a speaking technique called a diatribe in which you envision the negative uh, response, the objections from those who are hearing you. You anticipate those and then you respond to them. And so that's exactly, I think, what the Apostle Paul is doing. Imagine he's speaking to a heckler. And he knows exactly what they're going to say because Paul used to be that heckler. In fact, he knows the arguments because he believed them. In fact, some people are saying Paul here is arguing with himself. The old Pharisee is arguing with the new Christian, Paul. And that seems to fit. But whatever we take, we have uh, whatever perspective we take, we have in Romans chapter 3 this dialogue back and forth between this imaginary uh, opposer, the, the objections that are so common to what Paul was teaching, and that's what he's going to deal with in chapter 3. And the very first one is simply the idea, does God bless the Jew with some kind of advantage? Look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? And what value is there in circumcision? Now, he said in chapter 2, verse 25, there was value in circumcision if you kept the law. But Paul went on to redefine the word Jew, not just by birthright, but one whose heart believes in God. And circumcision is of the heart, not just performed as an operation on the body. Now, everyone agrees that God has given to Israel. Among all the nations, God has given to Israel a covenant, and he's given them a sign. The sign was circumcision. But if you don't get the story right, if you have the facts wrong, you're going to come out wrong at the other end. They were incredulous. You mean there's no advantage then in being a Jew? And the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, well, actually, there is an advantage much in every way. Now, if you read further down, it's, it's almost comical because in verse 9, he says, we do not have any advantage, not at all. But here he says we do. Now, does that sound like a contradiction to you? Paul's answer is, is there an advantage in being the Jew? He says, well, yes and no. Kind of de depends, on, depends on how you define it. So yes, there is an advantage in this one sense. And he goes on to explain the advantage. First of all, verse 2, sounds like he's going to give you a list of advantages, right? <laughs> if he's going to give you a list of advantages, the next one is mentioned in chapter 9, verse 4. But the word that is used here is where we get the English word uh, uh, prototype. It means first, and probably a better way to understand it is, the first and most important factor is this. So he's not really thinking about a list, he's thinking about the primary thing. The Jews have an advantage much in every way because they have been entrusted with the very words of God. No other name, uh, nation was given that. The very words of God, not just the Ten Commandments to Moses and not just the promises of a Messiah, 
as a covenant to the nation, but the whole Old Testament. By the way, this is one of those times when if you're not noticing closely, you'll overlook the fact that the New Testament is calling all the Old Testament Scripture, the very words of God. And so that's why there is Jewish advantage. Psalm 147, verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. And what other nation is so great? Notice that. Great. As to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today. So from the time of Moses and through the time of David's writing in the Psalms, we have this clear fact that to the Jew has been given this self-disclosure of God, a revelation of God in the very words of God. Let me remind you, every time you open up your Bible and read it, you are reading the very words of God. What a gift. And they were privileged to have it. God's revelation just ha doesn't happen anywhere. God chose to disclose himself to the Jewish nation. John chapter 4, verse 22. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said to the woman at the well. So it's through the Jewish nation that God brings his word. It's through the Jewish nation that the very words of God promising a king, a Messiah, it comes through them. What a high and holy privilege. But did you notice it says that they have been entrusted, verse 2, with the very words of God? They are custodians of this special revelation. It was not necessarily given to them. It was entrusted to them. They don't own it. They can't change it. They're just responsible for it. And that makes all the difference in the world. It shifts the emphasis from ownership to stewardship. From possession, this is mine, to responsibility. This isn't mine, but I have a responsibility to handle it properly. Imagine if God gave to a doctor, the cure for cancer, you might ask the question, is that doctor special? And the answer would be, yeah. <laughs> no one else has been given that, given the cure to cancer. But it's not to make him great. It's so that he can use that cure to heal millions of people. And so the privilege of having the cure is more of a responsibility. And that's what they've got to carry out. You see, God gave his very words to the Jews, and he blessed Abraham. You read about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And I've given you my word, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you a light to the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Oh, the Jews believed that the Torah was sacred. It was their pride and joy. But their response to it was disappointing. Kept it to themselves. 
became lifted up with pride. We're the only nation. God does play favorites. And his favorite is me. Now, since I'm not talking to a Jewish audience in the main, I would suggest to you that the Bible-believing church of the 21st century is in a similar position. We have been greatly privileged because we have the very words of God in different translations to help bring out the original meaning. And that is a high and holy privilege, but it doesn't make us special except only in the sense that we are to be the ones who take it to the world. And so we began to see that we are greatly privileged because we carry an unbelievable responsibility. It's not to make us proud. It's to use us for his glory. So is there an advantage to the Jew much in every way from the standpoint that they have been given the very words of God and no other nation has received a revelation of God like that? And God cannot be known except through the scriptures that he revealed to the nation of Israel and that have been given to us. Well, there's a second objection that Paul anticipates. And the second one is this. Does God break his promise if we are unfaithful? Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Some of the Jews were unfaithful. They've been given the very words of God. And probably encapsulated in that is the focus on the greatest promise of a coming Messiah. So if we are unfaithful, does that mean the Messiah won't come? And does our unfaithfulness nullify, cause God not to be faithful? Can my sin affect the holy God of heaven? By the way, one scholar says this is a play on words. If you go back to chapter 2, you have the word entrusted. We don't see it as much in English, but the word trust, or as we have it translated, faith in some places, is really uh, the same root word. And, and so the scholar translates it like this. If some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? In other words, can my sin affect the holy God of heaven? How can you possibly say, Paul, in one breath that the Jews have failed so completely in their God-given role and then turn around and insist that they are privileged people. If they are as bad as you say they are, they cannot possibly part, be part of God's covenant. And if they're not part of God's covenant, then God's covenant fails. And you become unfaithful. That's the reasoning. Paul, the ever-present apologist, says, what ridiculous thinking. God's character and behavior are never determined nor affected by human behavior. He's too great that we could influence him or change him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So God has ways of making the wickedness of man praise him, but he's not responsible for the wickedness of man. It's precisely because God is different from us that he is able to help us and save us. And so verse 4 says, will our unfaithfulness make God unfaithful? Verse 4 says, not at all. In fact, that's pretty tame. Actually, it's uh, uh, the strongest negative that you can find in the Greek language. It's something like, no, 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 no. Or not on your life. Or not in a thousand years. It could never happen. Let God be true. And let every human being be a liar. Let God be true. And every human being a liar. Paul's response is rather quick. It's strong. And he, he puts it where uh, the perspective, the philosophy, where it ought to be. The bottom of line of Christian philosophy is simply, we are not God. He is true. We are wrong. God is righteous, and we are not. Notice the second half of verse 4. As it is written, and here an illustration is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. As it is written, so that you may be proved righteous or right when you speak or judge and prevail when you decide. This is taken, a story taken from the life of David. This is David's confessional psalm after his multiple sins. David acknowledges that he sinned against Uriah, that he sinned against Bathsheba, that he sinned against the nation. And he lied about it for almost a year. So the multiple sins, you think of them, uh, are taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, the sin of adultery, the sin of dishonesty. And I'm sure there are a few other ones thrown in. And what God is saying, or David is saying in his confession is, I'm the liar, God is speaking truth. And it's always that way. Always that way. You come up with an idea that goes against the word of God, tell me who's the liar. Now, you may just be confused. You might be deceived. But you're wrong if what you say goes against Scripture. Because God is always true. It's important for us to understand that in our daily lives when we are bombarded with philosophies that do not come from heaven above. Or we, like the Jews, begin to analyze and rationalize our relationship with God because we're such privileged people. We begin to think that maybe we're right and God is wrong. Our generation is sitting in judgment upon the character of God and calling him wrong when he states a truth that they don't like. So we come to another objection. 
And this objection is, does God benefit from my sin? Actually, verse 5 through verse 8 deals with this same similar objection. So is there no advantage in being a Jew? Yes, there is. But only in the sense that you're responsible, having been given the very words of God. Is God unfaithful? Because I'm unfaithful, will he break his promises? Absolutely not. He's always true. And human beings are always wrong when in conflict with him. And thirdly, does God benefit from my sin? Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath upon us? Paul says, I'm using a human argument. In other words, this is what humans often say. Wait a minute now. If, if God's grace is greater than all my sin, and we just sang about it uh, a while ago, and that's true. And by the way, Paul's going to develop these same concerns later on in chapter 5 and 6 and go into more depth. But if God's grace is greater than my sin, could it not be said that the more I sin, the more his grace is on display? And so if that is true, if God benefits from my wickedness, how can he bring judgment upon me? When you think about it, this shows the twisted thinking of human beings who are doing all they can to reject God. Is God unjust? He never is. You are impugning his character. In other words, the more wicked the criminal, the more righteous the judge appears. The greater my sin, the more glorious the gospel looks. Now, God is not the author of sin, but he allows man to make decisions. He's put us in a position where we are free moral agents, but he can use what mankind does in rebellion against him, ultimately for his glory. The greatest example is the cross. Read in the book of Acts. Wicked people took him. Envious people gave him up. And they killed him, which, by the way, was God's eternal sovereign purpose from the beginning of the ages. He uses the wickedness of man to praise him. If you go to a jeweler, jeweler and you want to buy a, a beautiful diamond ring, they'll often put it, the backdrop will be a black felt because that beautiful ring looks so good behind the black felt. Our sin is so dark and his righteousness is so holy. It's not his fault that we are sinners. And there's no logic to the more we sin, the more his grace is greater because our sin doesn't increase him. It might be more evident. His grace might be more evident, but it is not increased. In fact, every sin was nailed to the cross. Every sin was endured by Christ. And to have a cavalier attitude towards sin, I can keep sinning and God will keep forgiving. I can keep singing, sinning. He'll give me more grace and he'll get more glory. I can keep sinning. Your sin 
was endured by Jesus on the cross. How can you say, let me throw another nail in there? Let me wound him again. This human argument falls apart. Our unrighteousness never benefits God. He is not unfair. He is not unjust. And in the end, my unrighteousness, even if it displays the righteousness of God in a a great way, my unrighteousness is still mine. And his righteousness is still his. And he had no part to play in mine. So you come to verse 6. Another Certainly not, not in a thousand years. Because if that were so, God could not judge the world and all the Jews acknowledge that he's the judge of the world. That's a position that they've embraced. They were fine with it in chapter one when it was dealing with the Gentiles, but now that it's dealing with them, they're having a bit of a problem. God is the universal judge. And they agree with Abraham from Genesis chapter 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So in this day, our world judges God. They deny his existence. They attack his word. They curse him and blaspheme him to his face. But in another day, the God who is so unlike us and so above us will be the one to judge us. Remember we read in Romans 2, it's his mercy and kindness that judgment hasn't come yet. But it's being held back like water behind a dam, waiting for the day when the floods will come. And what little judgment comes upon us now, consequences because of our decisions, is nothing like the flood that will come. He's holding back his judgment for mercy. One theologian said, but we are not God. The sovereignty belongs to him alone. Evil remains evil in spite of the good which God may bring out of it. The nonsense of history remains nonsense in spite of the sense which may be found at times in it placed by God. The world is still the world in spite of the mercy of God which sustains it and gives it another opportunity to exist, another day to live. God is not the author of sin. And man's sin does not increase his glory or his grace one iota. kind of a similar argument in verse 7. Someone might argue, and here Paul takes the first person in the argument, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I condemned a sinner? Notice what these objections really aim at. Why am I judged? Why will I experience his wrath, verse 5? Why will I be condemned a sinner? The message has come through. The wages of sin is death, and they don't like it, especially when they're God's chosen people. It's to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. We're all in the same boat. Verse 8, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. 
They were actually accusing Paul of that. And later on in chapter 6, it will be mentioned again. You say that evil blesses God. Let's do more evil then, so that good might come of it. If being bad makes God look good, then let's be worse so he can look better. And you know what Paul says to that? Nothing. (laughs) That statement doesn't even merit a response. Your condemnation is just. Let me just say this. What you get in the end, you've earned. An awesome statement. You see, in the end, the sovereign God does what he wills to do, and man does not influence him. But what he wills to do is righteous and just and good. And what God loves to do is show mercy to those who have fallen. He does not take joy in our sin, but he takes joy in our rescue. The loving God of heaven is searching for the lost and longs to win them to himself. And he's given us the opportunity in this age of grace to trust him or to reject him. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Paul says on behalf of the Jews, (laughs) not at all. He said they did early on, but all he meant by that was, yes, they have the advantage of having the words of God, which turns out to be a great responsibility. But are they given some salvific advantage? Being a Jew, does that mean that you're going to be saved? Having been circumcised, does that secure your eternal life? And the answer is not at all. For we have already concluded and made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power, the condemnation of sin. The first three chapters of Romans is bad news. It's like reading Psalm 88 in which nothing good is said at all. The only good you find in Psalm 88 is the fact that it's a prayer. Everything else is a downer. But you have to see the bad news before you can see the good news. You have to know you're sick before you go to a doctor. And there's a lot of people in our world who don't believe they're sick. So we have to proclaim the message of the righteous, holy God who sets a standard based on his own character and revealed in his holy word. All are sinners and come short of the glory of God. So in this section, Paul does reaffirm the covenant. Yes, there is an advantage in being a Jew because you have the very words of God. And no, God's promises will not be broken because of your unfaithfulness. And yes, he is the perfect judge. His justice is always right. And no, his glory is not promoted by your wickedness. And when we get to the end of this chapter, glory it will be (laughs) when we realize that there's a righteousness from heaven for us who have none of our own. It's the righteousness found in the person of Christ, and it comes not by working, but by believing, receiving, trusting. That salvation is such a wonderful gift 
that it comes to ruin all our condemnation and give to us a life that will never end. I came across a poem by Joseph Addison Alexander written in the 1800s. I hadn't seen it for a long time and I thought it very appropriate. It's a bold in your face poem, but it kind of tells us what's happening in the first few chapters of Romans. It's called The Hidden Line. There is a time, we know not when, a point, we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. The conscience may still be at ease, the spirit, life, and gay. That which pleases still may please, and care be thrust away. But on that forehead God has set indelibly a mark, unseen by men, for men as yet are blind and in the dark. And while the rebel's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed, he did not, does not, will not know or feel that he is doomed. He truly feels that all is well, for he has paid no cost. He lives. He dies. He wakes in hell to be forever lost. Oh, where is this mysterious line by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself assigns that he who goes is lost? How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. From me do not depart. While it is called today, repent and harden not your hearts. Heavenly Father, the bad news is so startling and graphically displayed on the cross. But the good news is so wonderful. It's beyond our comprehension. It doesn't seem that it could be so simple. It is not simple for you. But by faith, we can embrace it. And I pray for someone here today who has been playing games with you, and in their questions, cursing you, doubting you, calling you unfair and unjust. Oh, Lord, wake them up today to the reality that they're across the bad line. And if they hear your voice today saying, turn from your sin and trust me, may today be the day of their salvation. I thank you, Lord, that every person who comes to you acknowledging their sin honestly is always converted, is always saved, is always forgiven, for that is your promise, and you can never break your promise. In Jesus' name we pray.